Well, about 18 months ago, Pastor Van Tynen first approached me about the idea of speaking on one of the great paradoxes and, frankly, one of the great challenges that I feel is at the heart of early Christianity and Christian life today. And that is this relationship between, on the one hand, the everyday life and experience of the Christian, what we see around us day in and day out, what we feel within us, and on the other hand, our confessional characterization of that life as somehow being victorious. Running throughout the scriptures and histories of Christian confessions, there is a flowing fugue on a theme that goes something like this. Despite being rejected, condemned, and crucified, Christ somehow stands victorious over evil. We somehow share in that victory, and somehow, someday, the world will share in that victory as well. That is the fugue of our Christian faith. That is the contrapuntal melody rolling through the centuries, resonating amongst a rich diversity and communities of people all around the world. Christ stands victorious over evil. We share in that victory, and someday the world will too. Now, our time this morning will be spent thinking through the portion of John's gospel where the religious leaders and Pilate are at an impasse with what to do with Jesus. It's a very strange and odd scene. In John 18 through 19 is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please open them and turn there with me. Jesus stands condemned and is abandoned by his family, by his friends, by his followers, before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is a representative of arguably the most powerful political force in the world at that time. And yet he seems to be attempting to try to free Jesus. And the religious leaders, and most strangely of all, Jesus himself doesn't seem to let him. So I'd like to linger with you this morning on this episode because I think it lends critical insight into the quality of what Pastor Ventinen has been calling the victorious foundations of Christian life. What we will witness in this encounter between the religious leaders, Pilate and Jesus, are in fact different visions, not only of what victory looks like, but the manner and means in which they are accomplished. Now, when Pastor Van Tynan asked me to speak on this theme, I confess I was a little bit hesitant because as you've no doubt discovered by now, or we shortly will discover, I am neither a preacher man nor the son of a preacher man. But also, and perhaps to be a bit too candid, I find that the Christian confession makes extravagant claims that can sometimes sit uncomfortably with everyday experience. And this is one of them. How can we possibly believe and confess the extravagant claims of Christianity when so much of life and so much of the news appears anyway to tell a different story? How can we speak of victory when truth and beauty and light and love justice and fairness seem to be so scarce? And how can we possibly confess a life characterized by victory when many of us walk with bruised hearts, torn by ribbons of loss, anxiety, fear, and feelings of defeat? But it's more than just personal experience that makes this topic so challenging, isn't it? It's also history. There are ugly and violent and perverse versions of uh, victory that haunt our Christian past, and sadly, some on full display in our current moment. It's hard and sometimes maybe 
even a little cringy to hear the words victory and Christianity together in the same sentence. Our minds go to crusades, to witch trials, and on and on and on the examples could be given. And of course, to the ways that certain pastors can use victorious living as a justification for their extravagant lifestyles. So if we're going to make sense of this, con this confession, and dare I say celebrate this confession, that somehow Christ stands in victory over evil, that we share in that victory, and that someday the world will too, I think we need to consider what that victory might mean and how it's achieved. And learn to live this confession with and alongside the material, emotional, and spiritual pain of the world. So that is my prayer for us this morning, that we can explore this theme vulnerably and honestly with one another, because trite slogans and hashtags just won't do on this subject. So I'd like to position the scene of the religious leaders and Pilate and Jesus in John 18 through 19 as a kind of spiritual guide to help us this morning to think through this complex theme of the victorious foundations of Christianity. And we're going to do this slightly differently this morning. We're going to do this by looking at the motivations of each of these actors as John's gospel portrays them. We're going to look first at Caiaphas and the religious leaders. Secondly, we're going to look at Pilate, um, at Pilate. And then finally, of course, we'll turn to Jesus. So first, Caiaphas. <clears throat> the situation intensifies very significantly and severely after Judas betrays Jesus and the disciples abandon Jesus. The soldiers arrest him and forcefully lead him for sentencing to the high priest at Caiaphas's house. And as the scene shifts to the home of the high priest, John enters the narrative to remind us, and here I'm reading from chapter 18, verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had given counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, John is a skilled narrator, and he's reminding us here of the exchange that happened amongst the religious leaders after the raising of Lazarus from the dead back in chapter 11, which, as you can imagine, caused a little bit of a stir. In fact, many of the religious leaders came to believe in Jesus as a result of this miracle. As John says, I'll read here in chapter 11, starting in verse 45, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy places and our people. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, do you know nothing? Do you not understand that it is an expedient for you, for us, that one man should die for the people, that the whole of our nation might not perish? Now, before we're too critical of Caiaphas and the religious leaders here, I think we need to acknowledge they're in a pretty difficult situation. In fact, a pretty dangerous situation. Judea had been a Roman province since the year 6 AD, and though Rome had a presence in the region for about 63 BC. And there was a peace in the land, but it was a very fragile, tenuous peace. Histories of recent skirmishes and the threat of a new populist movement around a figure like Jesus would have introduced a swift and indiscriminate response, a military response, actually, by occupying Roman forces. So the high priest and the religious leaders 
are, are trying to figure out how to forestall a potential bloody disaster. I think it's important to read John empathetically at this point. It's of course likely, as political leaders and religious leaders often do, that they are somehow acting in the service of their own interests. But from the perspective of the Jewish leaders, Jesus was playing a dangerous game. He seemed to be aligning himself with God himself. He performed strange wonders. His teaching didn't exactly complement their own traditions, and he had marched on the capital with a growing following on the high holy day of Passover. The religious leaders had seen versions of this before, and they never ended well or peacefully. Again, there's an un, a very uneasy, fragile peace that the Jews experienced with the Roman uh, occupation during this time. They were more or less allowed to do what they want, to practice their religion as they wanted to, but there were visual reminders of their occupation and the fact that they were not free. And occasionally throughout the history of the land at this time, charismatic prophets would arise, lead a people in revolt, and the situation would turn bloody in a hurry. So in handing Jesus over to Pilate then, their mind, in their mind at least, the religious leaders were acting for the good of the people. Now there's something, and John is such a skilled narrator here, there is something in the deliberation of the religious leaders after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead that is a bit comical, or at least it would be if the situation weren't so dire. Because on the one hand, a prophetic figure has just raised someone from the dead. Like, like literally, he raised some from the dead. A corpse has made, was made to live again. And as you can imagine, within the deliberations of the religious leaders, some people thought that could come in handy. But Caiaphas and others shrewdly snapped them to reality as he says, do you know nothing? This is dangerous. This man needs to be sent away. So Caiaphas rightly saw that Jesus' presence was untenable with the current operations of the world. Now I hasten to say, and I, and I believe this, that just outcomes and just processes must be kept together. And yet, Caiaphas rightly sees the imminent threat that Jesus and the enthusiasm around him poses to the safety of the nation. So he proposes an expedient solution to address the crisis at hand. Kill the prophet, save the people. And John's gospel says he utters these words prophetically, that Jesus should die for the nation, but not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered all over the world. So according to John's gospel, the religious leaders went for the expedient option. Achieving victory in the short term, they handed Jesus over to Pilate to be killed. But God was not absent. Now John's gospel amounts to more than simple moral and spiritual lessons, but there's something urgent here for us, I think, to consider. That is short-term solution, solutions and expedient decisions, as understandable and maybe even as justifiable as they may be, rarely make for sustainable solutions. In politics, in business, in relationships, shortcuts in the end make for deep wounds. People of my generation and older 
will no doubt remember the Challenger and its explosion on 28 January of 1986. And maybe some of you younger folk will know it now as well because of that excellent Netflix documentary. And what was so discouraging about that is during the investigation, it became immediately clear to everyone involved in the investigation of why the Challenger exploded, that catastrophe seemed inevitable. Catastrophe was inevitable, according to the expert opinions of everyone involved. And because of pressures like budgets, the international spotlight, and deadlines, they let the big picture of American success in space blind them to the glaringly obvious, the expedient option. And tragedy, of course, ensued. And, and something like this, I think, is what John is trying to communicate to his audience with respect to the religious leaders. They let the big picture of safety and care, their understanding of that big picture, blind them to what, according to John's narration, is obvious. The very word, light, life, love, and wisdom of God came to his people, and they received him not. So for the safety and good of the people, the religious leaders took the expedient path and sent Jesus to Pilate, the keeper of the fragile peace. Let's quickly turn to Pilate. Pilate was the governor of the Roman province of Judea, and he was in this position for about 10 years. And his job description was pretty clear. Keep the peace, collect taxes. And according to the sources, though he governed aggressively and frankly insensitively at times, he seems to have been fairly effective. And at least in the Gospels, he seems to have worked reasonably well with the religious leaders. He was far from a lover of the people, of course, and on at least one occasion, maybe a few occasions, he incited riots owing to cultural insensitivity before the events that we're reading in John's Gospel. So as the religious leaders approached from Caiaphas's house with Jesus as a prisoner and with a growing crowd in tow, Pilate would have been on high alert. It was, after all, the Passover, a high holy day in the Jewish calendar commemorating God's deliverance of his enslaved people from the Egyptians. So here you have a crowded city abuzz with memories of the overthrow of foreign, foreign overlords in the air, and there they were outside Pilate's door. The day was already going to be a busy one for Pilate, and things just got a whole lot more intense. And what John does is he skillfully shifts the scene in chapters 18 through 19 between outside meetings with the religious leaders and inside meetings with Jesus. Pilate was going to get his steps in this morning, walking back and forth on numerous occasions, trying to figure out what he was, was to do. Now, in order to make sense of this scene, I want to first look at what's happening outside between Pilate and the religious leaders, and then we'll turn inside for the startling conversations he had with Jesus. So first, Pilate and the religious leaders. There's a series of exchanges between Pilate and the religious leaders that increase in severity and in, frankly, danger. In the first exchange, Jesus is given over to Pilate with a guilty charge, and Pilate has one expectation here from the religious leaders. He is to kill him. The second exchange, after his first interview with Jesus, Pilate finds no fault in him. So he returns to the religious leaders and says, I find no crime in him. 
He tries to release Jesus, as was his custom during the Passover, but the crowd instead chooses the political prisoner, Barabbas. During the third exchange, Pilate tries to appease the crowd with the release of Barabbas and the public beating and humiliation of Jesus. And he does this, John tells us, to try to satisfy the outcry for Jesus' death. And Pilate once again says, I find no crime in him. The chief priests and officers cry out that he must be crucified. And for the third and final time, Pilate says, I find no crime in him. Like Peter, the religious leaders deny Jesus three times. The fourth exchange is what finally strikes fear into the heart of Pilate and ultimately bends his wishes, ultimately bends him to the wishes of the crowd for the death of Jesus. Because they finally share the charge that they had determined in the house of Caiaphas. Jesus had made himself son of God. So Pilate again rushes to interview Jesus and tries to free him still a final time. But the religious leaders trap him and say, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king, that is, Jesus is making himself a king, according to the leaders, he has set himself against Caesar. So there's the situation. Christ to the left of him, the religious leaders to the right, and there Pilate is, stuck in the middle of a mounting political disaster. And it's important to stress at this point that the religious leaders and Pilate want the same thing. They want the preservation of that fragile peace. But Pilate is trapped. If he doesn't crucify this man in whom he sees no fault, he risks a riot. And if he crucifies, and if he crucifies the man in whom he sees no fault, he may also risk a riot from his followers. Now, there's an additional complication here because Pilate was the representative of Roman peace and power in the Judean province, and he served under the emperor Tiberius. And Tiberius had dedicated a temple to the goddess Eustitia, or Justice, in Rome. Eustitia, or Justice, was a deified principle within Roman governance. To condemn an innocent man would be to betray this Roman ideal of justice. So how does Pilate respond? He doesn't formally condemn Jesus, rather shrewdly. He was far too clever for that. In an attempt to preserve the peace, he instead turns Jesus over, who he three times declared to be innocent, to be crucified. For the sake of peace, he had an innocent man killed. So all that is going on outside. And guess what? It succeeded. In the short term, at least, from the perspective of Caius and Pilate, victory had been achieved. Crises had been averted. The nation has been spared. The fragile peace is still intact. What are we to make of this? One of my favorite thinkers from the 20th century is Simone Weil. And Simone Weil wrote this beautiful book called Gravity and Grace. And in this text, Simone Weil talks about how most of life just kind of gets caught up within the, within the force of being lived. You kind of wake up and live life without much reflection upon what you're doing. This is the force of gravity that just sort of pushes us along like a current. The trouble with this is that it leads to a kind of entropy. 
a kind of chaos where if we are not mindful of what we're doing, we might wake up in situations we had no plan to be in in the first place. The great catastrophes and ethical lapses that occur in business and relationships tend to occur at the end of a prior series of expedient decisions and compromised values. And it's, this is the, the terrifying reality of all of this, is that God forbid this happens to any of us, but should any of us come to that day in life where we're fired from our job because of something we've done or we're put in prison or we lose our family, we lose our business for, on account of something we've done, whatever we would have done to do that, we wouldn't decide that this morning. If that option were presented to you this morning, you wouldn't choose it. But the gravity of life swings you into that direction eventually if you take a series of compromises and expedient decisions. The way to countervene this, Simone Weil says, is through the miracle of grace. Grace is the countervening force to the slow tide of gravity. Grace from God, grace given to one another, and the habits of grace we form by meeting with one another. So that is what's happening. It's this slow push of Jesus into the cross. And yet John is absolutely clear. God is there at every step. Now let's turn to what is happening inside. Let's enter the praetorium and listen in on the exchange between Pilate and Jesus. And what I want to do is read the series of uh, verses where Jesus and Pilate are talking back and forth. And instead of painting the whole context for each and every uh, thing that is said, I want to read them like the script of a play and then make three observations. So Pilate and Jesus inside the palace. Pilate first approaches in 1833. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, do you say this of your own accord or did others tell you this about me? Pilate responds, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingship is not of this world. If my kingship or if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over. But my kingship is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. The reason I was born and the reason I have come into this world is for this reason, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate then leaves this to speak with the religious leaders to declare it for the final time that he finds no fault in Jesus. But then he returns And when Pilate heard that Jesus had made himself son of God, he was terrified. So he entered the palace again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. And Pilate responded, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? And Jesus responded, you have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Let me make three observations and we'll move to a conclusion. 
Though it appears that Pilate is attempting to free Jesus, what we are witnessing is a bit more politically complex. Jesus won't let Pilate's offer of peace and freedom stand as they are given because they're not his to give. This is a recognizable political gesture in the ancient world that Pilate is performing. And the move is something like this. I possess power and authority over you. I therefore offer you clemency and forgiveness. If you recognize my authority, I will set you free. But notice that in 1911, Jesus condemns the expediency of Caiaphas and the peace that is no peace that Pilate is trying to keep and the authority which he is doing so. He points to higher purposes and the sovereignty of God. Christ is going to the cross ultimately to die as the Passover lamb to save his people and bring peace to the world. But this is not a salvation or this is not a peace from the world. It is from above. And we remember back in chapter 3 of John's gospel that this is the above with which one has to be born into when he's speaking with Nicodemus. So Jesus denies the authority of Pilate. He rejects his offer of peace, and he rejects the expediency of the religious leaders. So what happens after this confrontation between Jesus and Pilate? Well, he dies. Jesus is killed. Painfully, slowly, shamefully, and alone. So alone that in other Gospels, we hear that gut-wrenching cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So how does this possibly relate to victorious foundations of Christian life? It's intriguing to me that the first thing that the risen Jesus says to his disciples is peace be unto you. And that in the commissioning of Peter and his disciples, he says to them, tend my sheep, care for my people. But Christ's offer of peace and the care for his people live on the other side of sacrificial love. Because of this sacrificial love, we can have peace with God, with ourselves, and with one another. So the material, emotional, and spiritual pain, both within us and around us, and all throughout the world, is evidence not so much of a kind of contradiction at the heart of Christianity, but it's evidence that our mission remains to sacrificially love one another because of Christ's sacrificial love for us. This is our victorious foundation, Christ's sacrificial love, and all of mission flows out of that sacrificial love. Because of this sacrificial love, Christ stands victorious over evil, and we have peace with God. Because of this sacrificial love, we too stand victorious over evil with Christ, and through our sacrificial love and meeting the material, emotional, and spiritual pain of the world, so shall the world. The great 17th century mystic Jakob Burma once wrote, our present time is in need of a different kind of medicine. He was writing that in the 1600s. I think it applies to today pretty well. Our world right now is in need of a different kind of medicine. It's the medicine that's born out of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. It's born out of that union we have with Jesus Christ. And it's spread throughout the world through the sacrificial love 
that we give to the world so that they might participate in that as well. Thank you very much.